Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Remember, you can join me and the Detroit Today team and other WDET listeners for our Smart Politics Constitutional Convention and Happy Hour tomorrow evening from 6 to 8 p.m. We are going to gather outside because we still need to be really cautious because of the pandemic. Uh, We'll be under the tent at Otis Supply in Ferndale. Remember, space is limited, so get all the details and register today at WDET.org slash events. And as always, this event is free and open to everyone. Really looking forward to the conversation and debate that we'll have during this event. But mostly, I'm just looking forward to the idea of in-person events again here at WDET. This will be the first I've been able to participate in in more than a year and a half. Okay, let's start here today. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Those freedoms, religion, speech, press, and protest are right at the top of the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution. And to this day, they are probably the freedoms we cherish most as a nation. The ability to practice our religion of choice, to express ourselves and our political views out in the open, and to hold public officials accountable. Those are all cornerstones of American life. But interpreting that amendment and putting into practice in real life isn't without challenges. The First Amendment not only protects speech, but also assembly and the right to petition for redress of grievances. Assembly is itself a modern flashpoint. Think of the Black Lives Matter protests, for instance, that we saw across the country last year. They were overwhelmingly peaceful, but they also drew aggressive and sometimes brutal responses from law enforcement. Contrast that with the nearly all-white crowd of insurrectionists who attacked the U.S. Capitol in Washington on January 6th of this year, and police looked just downright docile in that case. How free are all people, really, to express themselves in this country without the threat of government interference? And how much does the color of your skin, or your religion, or your gender, or your sexual orientation factor into that equation. That's where we begin the conversation today in continuation of our WDET book club discussion of the U.S. Constitution and the ways it influences both equality and inequality in our country. And we've got two really wonderful experts with us this hour to talk about it. Leonard Niehoff is professor of from practice at the University of Michigan Law School and a nationally recognized expert and scholar on First Amendment law. Len, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here. Also with us is Justin Hansford. He is a professor at Howard University School of Law and founder and executive director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center. Justin, welcome to Detroit Today. All right. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I want to start here with you, Justin. Uh, You say that, quote, The First Amendment is a racial project that results in predictable racialized outcomes 
that redistribute resources along racial lines. That's a pretty explosive idea. Uh, I want to start right there and have you explain why you believe that to be true. All right, thanks. Well, um, getting right to it, I see. <laughs> That's a great way to start. The, uh, the article I wrote in that claim is based on an understanding of the law, which uh, legal scholars call uh, legal realism. Essentially, uh, the, the, the base of it is you don't judge <clears throat> what the law is based on simply the words on the page, but you look to... Uh, what has happened in reality, what is happening on the ground, what is happening in real life, to determine the substance of what the law is. So uh, in that uh, article, what I did is I, uh, it's pretty much a historical article where I talk about the way the First Amendment was applied, not only in the 20th century, but the 19th century as well. And, uh, you know, very briefly, uh, and it's, it's pretty plain that over the lifespan of the First Amendment, uh, there's, you could probably count on uh, maybe one or two hands the number of uh, years where we really saw a, a strong effort to provide First Amendment freedoms equally uh, on, in regards to race. And, and, and of course, um, in the scholarship, I explain why that, ex- that exception to the rule took place. It was more a uh, uh, a, a situation that took place because of historical, political considerations uh, during the civil rights movement, where uh, the the legitimacy of the court was at risk. When after Brown versus Board of Education, there was uh, effort towards nullification and interposition, and so the court, in order to ensure that its rulings were uh, going to be respected, took a very generous uh, approach to the, the sit-ins and to some of the civil rights protests. But outside of that small window of time, in general, we have found that uh, the First Amendment has been, again, not the words on the page. The words on the page are, um, I guess you use the term colorblind, which is it's a, it's a, it's a problematic term right there. <laughs> but uh, the actual way it's been applied, of course, all the way up until the civil rights movement is very clear how it was how it was implied uh disproportionately but even since then when you look at as you described earlier the way that civil rights protests and uh black lives matter protests have been heavily policed as opposed to the way that we saw the uh insurrectionists and out there in Michigan I know you have your you had your own situations mm-hmm. uh so the, it's pretty clear to everyone who is a uh uh, casual observer, uh, the difference in application of the law, and that's that's this is the theory behind that is that's what the law is. It's not what the law says. The law isn't what it says. It is what it does. Hmm. And uh, if you look at what it does, it's pretty clear what the outcomes are. And it's, I call it a racial project because when you distribute uh, the, the freedom of speech, speech is a uh, power. Speech is good. Speech mm-hmm. is a good. When you distribute it that way. Uh, you are creating inequality uh, and creating hierarchy by allowing some people to have a voice and others not to have a voice in our democracy. And, and Justin, you come to this focus on assembly rights not just as an intellectual exercise, but as a reaction to practical 
experience. You were handcuffed and forced into the back seat of a police car during a protest. First, uh, describe that experience. Tell us what happened. Uh, but then talk about what it taught you about the First Amendment and assembly and race. Right. It was a, uh, yes, yeah, it's an unforgettable experience. Not that many uh, law professors are usually uh, going to find themselves in that place, but I, I did. And uh, at the time, I was serving as a legal observer, uh, so I was not uh, technically protesting at the time. I was uh, standing on to the side of a protest in a Walmart uh, in uh, the outskirts of Ferguson, in 2014, and uh, I was there with four other legal observers. Three of them were white, one was Asian, and myself. And uh, then uh, the protesters, once they began protesting, I guess the short of it is the the, uh, police came in and uh, took me away first, and none none of the other legal observers were arrested um, or anything like that. So, yeah, I got a chance to spend a night in, in jail. It's a pretty interesting experience being a lawyer or a law professor in jail. Uh, pretty popular. You know, people were asking me for legal advice, things like that. I can't, I can't pretend like I was, uh, you know, doing hard time. It was, it was a pretty easy experience to, to make it through uh, in light of what some other people have experienced as a result of their involvement in protests. You know, people have been really hurt as a result of arrests. Uh, or, uh, you know, things that happen throughout the process. But for me, the, the big takeaway there, you know, I, before that I, I was, had never, never written about the First Amendment, had never written about uh, protester rights, but that was sort of a turning point, as you can imagine. And uh, I decided to think more deeply about uh, what the real ramifications are of the disproportionate silencing of uh, some people's right to uh, assemble and, as opposed to other people's right to assemble. Mm-hmm. Uh, Len Niehoff, uh, this, this idea of the gap between the aspirations of the words in the First Amendment and the sort of practical application of those words over the last uh, nearly 250 years is something we've been talking about with regard to lots of different parts uh, of of the Constitution, but but I'd love to get your perspective about uh, the history of assembly under the First Amendment in the United States and how you view that the impact of racial equality and inequality in that context. Yeah, thank you. So let me begin by saying that I I agree with uh, a lot of what Justin just said, and um, uh, I think that he's offered some tremendous insights into how the First Amendment actually operationalizes. But but let me provide maybe a little bit of additional context. Um, so, um, you know, when, when you take the phrase, for example, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, it's maybe a useful starting point to note that the Supreme Court's actually interpreted that relatively simple phrase um, to mean very, very different things than what it appears to say. In fact, I tell my students that the Supreme Court has interpreted almost every word of the First Amendment to mean something other than what it says. Mm. Um, for example, no law doesn't end up <laughs> meaning no law. <laughs> um, but um, 
So we end up with not so much a First Amendment doctrine as a collection of First Amendment doctrines that apply in different categories and different contexts and, and so forth. And so when we look at um, protest, the picture becomes complicated because protests involve not just speech, but they involve conduct. And conduct um, obviously poses challenges, problems, complexities that, that speech alone may not pose. And so the doctrine that has evolved to try to address the complexities of um, protest is sort of a thing unto itself. Um, I think that historically, the First Amendment has been a powerful weapon in the arsenal of equality. It's It's been used to enforce the right to protest, to engage in dissent, to criticize the existing order, to promote political change and, and progress. I think that the violence used by Southern law enforcement against protesters in the 1960s tells us something important, which is that the pro-segregation forces feared the power uh, of speech. But it's also true that the First Amendment has been used as a weapon against equality. It's been held to protect virulent forms of racist speech and association. Uh, it has a tendency to empower those who are already in power and to perpetuate um, institutions that already exist. It can be used to resist systems of oppression, but it can also be used to perpetuate them. And I think that one of the most important considerations here is that even when free speech is working at its best, it comes with a cost and those costs do not fall equally to all individuals and groups. Th those costs are not distributed even handedly. Certain individuals, certain groups are, uh, end up bearing much of the burden and much of the cost mm -hmm. of free expression. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the First Amendment. <laughs> I'm an advocate of free speech. But I think that sometimes we go to those principles a little bit too quickly and without pausing to note the fact that um, free speech does come with a cost and that those costs are unevenly distributed. Mm. And, and so what are we to make, for instance, of this contrast that, that kind of has played out over the last year between uh, Black Lives Matter protesters last summer and then this really violent uh, expression of outrage at uh, the U.S. Capitol in January. I mean, I think for for a lot of for a lot of people, and and especially for African Americans, it's it's a very stark contrast, and it suggests that that things are no better, perhaps, now than they might have been in the 1960s or in previous eras where they were really imbalanced. Yeah, well, I think this is a terribly important point, and I, I don't think that there's any question that we've seen problems of unequal enforcement of the law against protesters uh, and across racial lines. Uh, not in every case, certainly, but uh, plainly in enough cases that it's fair to describe it as a serious uh, and a pervasive problem. I think that one of the challenges that um, law professors like Justin and I face is that uh, it's not clear that the law always has a solution to all of our problems. And it's not clear to me that the law in and of itself provides a useful remedy to, to this problem. Hmm. Um, you know, when we see instances of what strike us as plainly uneven and unequal enforcement of the law, figuring out how to challenge that through a civil rights suit where you can prove that that was the motivating factor 
uh, it really uh, there puts a lot of hurdles uh, in, in front of us. And so I think that the, the challenge is all the greater because a legal solution to it is at least not to me obvious. Mm. Uh, Justin, I hear you. I hear you agreeing in the background there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I agree. If you look at the jurisprudence on the First Amendment, uh, the overwhelming majority of the time, people are challenging a law uh, on the grounds of it being overbroad or vague or, uh, you know, time, place, and manner requirements. It's, always, it's, always, it's almost always challenging what's uh, on the paper. Uh, when you're challenging uh, what is happening in practice, because it's not necessarily something that is a policy or a um, a uh, universal practice. It may be an uh, individual decision by police officers or an on-the-spot decision. It's always uh, post hoc. In, in other words, um, I talk about in the article that uh, what happened in Ferguson was they created a rule, they being the, the uh, police officers, created a rule uh, in real time that people who were protesting in Ferguson could not stand still while protesting uh, for more than five seconds. Hmm. And so you had to keep moving. And this is uh, pretty ridiculous. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, there was no solid justification for it. Effectively, what it did is it tired people out. And, and uh, uh, it's probably a little, little known piece of history of that uh, Ferguson protest. It's one of the main reasons it ended is because after a while, having to continue walking, uh, people couldn't keep it up. There was a challenge by the ACLU that found its way into uh, federal court uh, a few weeks later, and the rule was found to be unconstitutional. But it was a little late because the protest had already been stopped. But, you know, the point of it was to end the protest, and it was effective. Even if they could not repeat the practice, uh, you know, they found a, a way to apply it in real time. And it's hard to get the the court moving that quickly uh, for things. Sometimes for injunctions, if there are things that you can predict that will happen in the future, perhaps. But in real time, it's hard to get a uh, a response from the courts that could uh, stop uh, things happening in motion. So I agree with that. It's just, it really creates a problem, and uh, you know I think that's why a lot of the it's, it's very cold. The protesters, especially the you know, Black, Lives, Black Lives Matter protesters, are oftentimes uh, motivated to protest because of some, some, a video or something they saw related to uh, a police brutality incident. And then what happens is they experience situations like this during the protest, mm. and their feelings only grow uh, because of the disproportionate policing of protests, mm. which they see. So it's almost, mm. it follows that pattern. Yeah. And it's, it is hard to think of uh, what the solution is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation about the First Amendment and equality as part of our WDET book club discussion of the U.S. Constitution. Obviously, we're going to keep Len Niehoff and Justin Hansford. <clears throat> we want to hear from you, the listeners, as well, though. How much do you value your First Amendment rights? Do you believe that freedom of speech, religion, assembly, and press are applied equally to all Americans, or are they like many of the other rights that we have 
in the U.S. Constitution and affected by this nation's history of inequality. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WBET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. We're continuing our WDET book club discussion of the U.S. Constitution and the ways it shapes and influences equality and inequality in our nation today. Uh, we are talking about the First Amendment today, uh, the freedoms of speech and religion and assembly that are protected in the very First Amendment to uh, the Constitution, and we're talking about whether those speech, whether those freedoms uh, are protected equally uh, now, in the past, how we get to a place in the future where perhaps they are protected more equally. Um, we really want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Give us a call and let us know what you think of uh, our First Amendment rights, uh, how they are protected how they play out in the context of racial and other kinds of inequalities that are endemic to uh, the American experience. Uh, 313-577-1019, as always, is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. We especially want to hear from you uh, if you have thoughts about the things that we're seeing right now, the contrasts that we see uh, in the ways that uh, rights to speech and assembly are protected. Uh, think of the January 6th insurrection in Washington and the way that the police and other authorities responded to that uh, in contrast to the ways in which police responded to Black Lives Matter protesters who were overwhelmingly peaceful last uh, summer. Uh, is that something that comes to your mind when you think about the First Amendment and the ways in which uh, it plays out equally or unequally? We've got two great guests with us as well this hour. Len Niehoff is professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School, a nationally recognized expert and scholar on First Amendment law. Also with us is Justin Hansford, who is a professor at Howard University School of Law and founder and executive director of the Thurgood Marshall uh, Civil Rights Center. Uh, Len, I want to uh, pull the lens uh, a little closer here in, in Michigan and talk um, a little about hate speech and extreme association. Um, you, you write in one of your papers on the First Amendment that, to quote, tolerance of hate speech and extremist association comes at a real and substantial costs, and that uh, honorable impulses and common sense intuitions tell us that we need to do something to address them and uh, their consequences. But you go on to warn that the kind of regulation that you're talking about could become, quote, another form of extremism, another tool of expression, and another whipcord driving human hearts and minds toward orthodoxy and finally the unanimity of the graveyard. Uh, I, when I read that, I, I think instantly, of course, of 
the extremist politics that are playing out here in the state of, of Michigan and that have kind of come to a head over the last year and a half during the pandemic. Uh, these groups who are very angry with uh, the governor of the state of Michigan um, and have have sought to express that in some appropriate ways, uh, but also have gone to extremes that have, uh, you know, invited the the interest of uh, of our authorities. Uh, can you expand on on that idea in in, in your paper? Sure. Thanks. Um, so, I, I think that you know the when when we talk about ideas like extremist or hate speech, we can all get pretty quickly toward a sympathetic point of feeling that that something needs to be done about it, that no one should be the target of hate speech. But when we try to figure out what a law is going to look like that will regulate hate speech or hateful or extreme association, we run into lots of, of problems. And I should say that the Supreme Court of the United States has never actually recognized hate speech as a separate category of speech or as an unprotected category of speech. And so there's some built-in ambiguity about what we're talking about, even when we talk about hate speech. But if you try to write a regulation um, to control it, uh, you run into all sorts of problems. You run into vagueness problems, problems of how you're going to define it. You run into what we First Amendment lawyers call overbreath problems. That is, you may punish the speech that you're trying to punish, but you may punish other speech also uh, unintentionally. One of the political dynamics that we often see at work in regulating speech, um, I describe to my students as almost being like a law of physics. That is, for every action, there is an unequal and opposite overreaction. Uh, Justin's example of you know addressing the protesters in Ferguson by telling them they have to keep moving is a is a great example of mm -hmm. this. If you're concerned about protester misconduct, there are a million ways to get at it that don't require people to be moving the entire time. Um, we run into problems of uneven application. Once you have a law, uh, there's going to be discretion in how it gets enforced. And, um, you know, that we've had some problems where uh, actually groups that advocated for minority rights were by one organization or a political body or a law enforcement body categorized as a hate organization. Um, and even if we could get past these vagueness and these overbreath and these application problems, um, we also still have a remaining problem of how comfortable we are with the government regulating thoughts, even thoughts we think are odious. And, um, you know, th those are, after all, at the end of the day, still an exercise of conscience. It may be a conscience with which we disagree uh, and that we think is hazardous, but, um, but still we have to ask ourselves if we want the government in that business. And then there's the issue that, you know, many of the things that worry us, we can um, address and punish anyway because we can get at the conduct rather than the speech. So conspiracy, illegal acts, um, uh, you know, we're seeing now uh, the prosecution of uh, many people who were at the January 6th uh, events. Um, and, um, you know, they're not being prosecuted for what they said, um, they're being prosecuted for what they did. Mm. So I, it's, I think it's a very complicated picture. And uh, sometimes people say to me, well, you know, all you need is the, to regulate hate speech is, is the political will to do it. And I'll hand them a, a pencil and a piece of paper and I'll say, write me a regulation then that isn't vague, isn't overbroad, can't be misapplied, 
and gets at something we can't get at with uh, existing laws. Hmm. Uh, What about the tensions that we see with these groups here in Michigan and their behavior? I mean, I I think a lot of people who identify with the politics being expressed there would say, look, this is an example of suppression of, of my political ideals that uh, but uh, it's a small group of people who uh, have gone beyond uh, beyond the, the the bounds of the law, but but that everybody seems to to, to feel like they're being punished or, or sort of shut down for, for for what they're saying. Is that a is that a legitimate tension in the First Amendment? Well, this is a very old problem. I mean, there, there is a sense in which this is not news, right? I, from the beginning, it was understood that um, precisely because speech is powerful and worth protecting, it also has the potential to be dangerous. And the question has always been, uh, where do we draw the line uh, that protects um, expression, protects uh, the the, uh, the expression of individual conscience, individual perspectives, different political arguments, so forth and so on, while at the same time uh, protecting individuals and our society from the dangers that that uh, that can follow. I think that the Supreme Court doctrine around this issue has largely gotten things right, and I think it's also very unsatisfactory. Um, it's, you know, I, I feel sometimes to paraphrase Churchill, like the, the First Amendment um, uh, doctrine that we have is the worst imaginable, except for all the others that we could imagine. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, so I think that, uh, you know, we're always going to reach a rough piece with this problem, Stephen. And, and, and I think that uh, in that sense, this is a very old problem that we have with us. Hmm. Uh, Justin Hansford, I want to bring you in back into the conversation here. Um, to talk about, the, again, the contrast between the way, uh, the way African-Americans are treated when they assemble or, or protest and, and, and white Americans are. We have a, a, a comment from someone on social media that, uh, that talks about the anecdotal evidence, for instance, uh, that, that suggests that uh, there is an inequality here that it's not proven, and that the BLM protests this this person suggests have been worse than what happened on January sixth by he says any and all uh, measures. Uh, I think a lot of people who look at things like the the response to uh, political extremism here in Michigan uh, and what happened during BLM last year often say. You know, African Americans are are complaining un, unduly about uh, this inequality. So, so, so help us understand how we know that this inequality exists. That there is is an imbalance in the way that authorities respond to black people and white people. Right. Uh, so the 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 place to start is with the data and the statistics. If um you know your callers just go to google you can look at look at the uh the wikipedia page on the george floyd protest and you'll see a number of sources that will tell you that uh over well, i think it's 97 98% of those protests thousands of protests were completely peaceful uh upwards of 20 million people participated in those um and then you can also see um you know that 
not only the the uh, thousands of arrests, but more interestingly, a number of charges that were dropped before the actual uh, arrest resulted in any sort of uh, indictment or trial. And what that what that indicates is uh, this concern that the arrests, you know, either the the arrests were mistakes, which they, I doubt they were, or the arrests were not never really, you know, they were never really intended for full enforcement. They were more arrests just to end the protests and uh, to try to to stifle the speech. And uh, again, that's uh, that's something that it is uh, because of the volume of the Black Lives Matter protests, um, as opposed to um, at least the one January 6th incident, um, you know, you, you're going to look at that comparison. It's going to be stark, but, uh, you know, I don't think that the looking at the numbers will do it justice alone. Uh, but, you know, I, one thing I, I did want to say also in terms of the last conversation mm-hmm. is that uh, uh, it's absolutely correct that um, the Supreme Court is, is almost universally uh, reinterpreted every word of the Constitution. It starts out by saying, "No law shall be, shall bridge free speech." And of course, we know there's libel and there's uh, uh, you know laws against uh, insider trading, communications, and child pornography. There are, there are a number of different speech acts, uh, true threats, a number of speech act, speech acts that uh, are regulated. And uh, so. This certainly hate speech is another speech act that is regulated in other countries, uh, and uh, they have um, found ways to do it without their system collapsing. It's not the same constitution that they're working with, of course, but uh, that that is uh, it should be noted that we do regulate a number of different uh, um, speech acts. In American society, we also know that in the private sphere, many of you, um, you know, if you are on Twitter or Facebook, YouTube, you you know that because of those are private platforms, uh, it's not the the, the same First Amendment, Amendment protections don't apply as if it was a situation where you're you were regulated by the government. But uh, the YouTube censors things all the time, uh, you know, so, social media often censor speech, and people may be frustrated by, frustrated by those acts of censorship, uh, but they, uh, you know, plod along, and they still use those platforms, and it hasn't been a catastrophe. So, you know, I think that that is, again, I, I tend to ascribe to the uh, school of legal realism and think uh, about the, the data and what's happening in real life. And I, when I think about the hate speech problem, Yes, there there are many uh, thorny issues when you look at the doctrine and how something like these, uh, you know, for example, on college campuses, there were there were efforts in the '90s to implement anti hate speech codes mm-hmm. <clears throat> that were almost uh, universally unsuccessful because the legal doctrines just couldn't. It was just hard to make it work. But uh, when you see uh, platforms that are not faced with the same restriction restrictions on being able to regulate speech that the government has, it's been able to function, you know, and that the, at the bottom of it, I don't want to go on and on, but the bottom of it is we need to have a, a, a real robust democratic, uh, uh, in, 
I guess, institutions that we can call our government. We've got to have more engagement. We need to have more responsiveness. So uh, it is true that many of us would not trust the government to uh, be as responsive in its decisions around uh, regulating speech as uh, even these private platforms, because at least the private platforms do have to respond to the market and uh, backlash, but the government could become totalitarian. Mm. So that is an issue, but I, I do think that it's, a, it's a, something that we should continue to engage, and as more and more hate speech is proliferated because of social media, because of people's engagement um, online, and, and there's much more speech that we have access to now than even 10 or 15 years ago because of, because of Twitter, because of Instagram sure. and all of this. So I think that we, we should have these conversations. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Len Niehoff and Justin Hansford. We'll get to your calls and comments as well. Brad and Shelby Township, Julie and West Bloomfield, we'll hear from you. If uh, you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone's call. And tell us what you think about the way that First Amendment protections are enforced and protected here in America. Is it uh, along lines of equality or does it really reflect the inequalities that we still live with uh, in our nation? You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there and we'll try to include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. And as always, thanks for joining. We're continuing our WDET book club discussion of the U.S. Constitution today. Uh, we're talking about the First Amendment with Len Niehoff, who is a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and with Justin Hansford, who is a professor at Howard University School of Law. Uh, we're talking about the protections in the First Amendment and how they play out in practical ways here in America, uh, the inequality that seeps into uh, the protection of First Amendment rights. We want to hear from you as well, what you think about the ways in which our First Amendment rights are protected. Uh, are they protected largely equally in your view, or uh, are they reflective of the inequality that uh, was kind of baked into uh, the United States uh, from the beginning? As always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter Put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Julie in West Bloomfield. Julie, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, how are you? Hi, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Great. Go ahead, so, Julie. Yeah I, yeah, I just wanted to bring to light the protesting that happened um, for the Dakota Pipeline a few years back. Hmm. Um, the Native American reservations, you know, they're protesting the pipeline to go through the edge of the reservation, but also to impact um the huge body of water, the Mississippi River, you know, that gives fresh water to so many millions of people. Um, and the, the protesting ended very violently, but not on their end. Um, they actually got gassed. There was a lot of injuries, um, arresting, um, all of really awful things that were never really on the news. And um, just wanted to bring that to light because that was such that impacted me, you know, mm -hmm. all the way to Michigan. So 
quite awful to witness. Yeah. Uh, Julie, I'm really glad you called and, and brought that up. It's something that I don't, I'm not sure everybody has kind of front of mind. Uh, uh, Justin Hansford, talk about that uh, that instance of sort of unequal application of, of First Amendment law. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll start oh, with I'm, you, Len. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Justin. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, this guy disconnected again. Uh, Did you repeat that question? I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, the, the caller was talking about the ways in which uh, the Dakota Pipeline protests right. were responded to by authorities and that that, in her mind, was an example of, uh, of the kind of inequality that, that shrouds First Amendment rights. Yeah, I do, yeah that, is, that is 100% accurate. I think um, the... The issues there were were almost uh, parallel. In fact, there were some early uh, Black Lives Matter protesters who even went and um, participated in some of those protests at the same time. And and I, you know, I, the the other thing I was going to add to that is those the, there are some laws that have been uh, passed which uh, that have tended to make these situations uh, more heightened um, in the in the context of some of the protests um, by the Native American communities. Oftentimes these laws are called critical infrastructure laws because what is happening is when uh, Native Americans are protesting the construction of pipelines that uh, traverse uh, ancestral, ancestral um, significant lands of theirs, uh, there are laws passed to make that make it illegal to, uh, you know, to make those to do those protests when there are critical infrastructure projects involved. It's very similar to some laws we see in places like Florida that have been passed over the last year, where um, you know, uh, it becomes legal to to run over a protester if they're in the street. Really outrageous laws. <clears throat> so that it's one of the interesting things about. This moment, when it comes to the freedom of assembly, yes, there's that. There's a problem of disproportionate uh, enforcement, but there's also the the other problem that is happening, where on the local level, in particular, on the state level, we're seeing laws being passed that are clearly targeted to respond to uh, certain types of protests. North Dakota is is. Um, you know, there's being as aggressive on these critical infrastructure laws as Florida is with the Black Lives Matter laws. So it's, it's, it is the legislature, and there are perhaps uh, uh, situations where there could be a more uh, legal, court-based response under the First Amendment to some of these types of laws. Because, as you were saying earlier, it's much easier to challenge a law than it is to challenge uh, on-the-spot behavior that's disproportionate. Mm. Uh, again, uh, uh, Julie, thank you very much for the call and uh, and the comments. Um, uh, we, uh, Len Lehoff, uh, I, I want to talk just a little um, uh, about uh, the ideas that uh, Justin was talking about before we broke about uh, hate speech and maybe changing the way that we deal with the concept of hate speech here in America. Other countries do handle that differently. And um, I, I wonder what you make of the opportunity, perhaps, for us to, to rethink that here. 
Yeah, thanks for circling back to that, Stephen. I think that's a really, this is a really important um, uh, question. Um, so I think that what we're all agreed on is that um, other countries do indeed uh, have indeed adopted laws that in one way or another restrict or punish or forbid um, hate speech of one kind or another. Where we disagree, where scholars disagree, is what we're supposed to take from the experiments of those other countries. Um, I, I think that for my part, um, what we see when we look at a number of those countries is uh, a collection of cautionary tales. Uh, when we look at how those laws have been enforced, who has been punished under them, the, whether we think those laws uh, have reached conduct that really, frankly, shouldn't be of any concern to anyone. I think that actually many of the stories about, or many much of the data about what's happened in other countries is, um, is deeply worrisome. Uh, for people who are interested in reading more about that, um, Nadine Strassen, the former uh, head of the ACLU, uh, wrote a book just within the last few years um, called Hate, and that uh, talks of the, the documents and, and collects a number of um, incidents about what, what's happened in other countries and enforcing those laws. Uh, Erwin Chemerinsky and Howard Gilman wrote a book called Free Speech on Campus that also uh, includes a lot of um, examples of the problems that other countries have run into. So there, there's no question that such a law can be can be written. The question is, do we want to live with the consequences of it? And um, do we think those laws are going to be uh, vague and, and overbroad? And, and by the way, you know, again, you, there's, a, there's a fearful symmetry <laughs> to all of this. So if we don't want anti-protesting laws that are vague and overbroad, then we also can't want anti-hate speech laws that are vague and overbroad. So um, I, 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 I take Justin's point that, that we haven't seen political cataclysm as a result of those laws, but I do think that the consequences of their enforcement has been deeply worrisome in a significant number of instances. Mm. Um, uh, Justin, I wonder what your response would be to that. I think, I, and I, I mostly agree. I, I think it is a challenge, and uh, as I said, when the efforts were made to create hate speech laws in the 90s on campuses, they uh, weren't successful. And um, we've seen uh, in more recent times, um, after some major Supreme Court decisions, uh, hate speech enhancements. Um, to uh, conduct um, like hate crimes, um, that has that seems to have been uh, an effort to try to uh, sort of get get to that problem. But you know, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm not really clear that it has solved the problem. Some of the research suggests that that um, you know, there's a even a disproportionate uh, prosecution level when it comes to uh, this this hate speech and, or the hate enhancement to some of these hate crime laws, <clears throat> where oftentimes um, it is uh, slapped on when, you know, people who are not necessarily, you know, you think about involved in in hate speech for people who's, who sort of mention the gender or racial makeup of the person. So it's not, real, it's not really clear that any of this 
uh, has been uh, effective in our efforts thus far. I do, I do think that I do want to caution against the parallel between the protest laws and the hate speech laws because, of course, the, the uh, underlying factor with the protest laws is really um, uh, trying to limit speech that is, in many cases, uh, criticism of the government. And we're talking about speech that is what in the constitutional uh, framework would be seen high value, very politically oriented speech, usually protests or really calling for some sort of political uh, reform or political change versus the hate speech laws where that type of speech is very rare. I mean, some, some folks will try to couch their uh, hate speech as being political in nature. Of course, we know in, the, in our history we've had Hateful things become political platforms, but oftentimes we're talking about slurs that are being spoken um, just with the, with the the goal of not engaging in some political discourse, but just the goal of hurting someone. Mm-hmm. And so that type of speech is a is a different category of speech to me. The uh, you know political speech would, to me would be seen as high value speech, and you know slurs and other types of speech like that, very close to threats in my mind sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can regulate threats as opposed to political speech with, I think, with a clearer conscience, uh, because we understand that, um, you know, the political speech is necessary for our democracy. And that's what the, you know, the First Amendment is designed to create, um, you know, freedom of uh, thought so people can participate in the marketplace of ideas, but a slur is not a a uh, effort to participate in the marketplace of ideas. It's not anything new being proffered. There's no evidence behind it. It's really designed to harm people. So that's yeah. the distinction I would make. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Len Niehoff and Justin Hansford. It was really wonderful to have both of you here with us for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. All right, thank you. Thank you. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when uh, we're going to talk about Bedrock and the World Economic Forum establishing Global Center for Urban Transportation right here in Detroit. We're going to talk with one of the organizers of that effort. And I'll talk with author Anna Lemke about her new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.